This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, the boys are back in town for another episode of the Gems of History podcast. Hey, oh, Welcome, oh, oh, everybody, oh, oh, oh. to another episode. Thank you for joining us again. I am your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me, as always, I have my two co-hosts, Mark Steinbrenner. I'm here, people. And Evan Rouge. I'm also here, people. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Gotta find something else. Is this episode nine or ten? 10, I think. 10, dang. I was going to say, well, once we get to episode 10, then I'll No, stop. this is 11. We've been doing this for a while. Wow, we're already in the double digits, guys. Wow. Cheers We've, we've actually got some dedication going on here. Time to give it up? Yep. Yeah. Oh, we, no, no. We're no. kind of past our prime. <laughs> <thing. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here, folks. We've yeah. covered all of the history. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally no more history for In us. In 11, <laughs> like, hour and a half segments, we've covered the entire history of we've peaked yeah we've peaked. people spend like years of their life going to school and studying history we covered literally everything in 10 episodes okay the glasses that jacob is on right now scream that we have indeed covered all of history that's all i can say right now i may or may not be wearing harry potter glasses as in he is he know. definitely is. no one will know no they'll never see it all I mean, right i'm gonna have to you take could a just picture be making and... that up mark Wow. I got to it's yeah, getting and posted. And you somewhere. dyed your hair blue for this episode. No, I didn't. Oh. Two pictures now. Anyone else got something? The, the listeners will never know. Yeah. No, we're, it's like the office <laughs> with uh, Michael and the recorder or Jim and the recorder. Yeah. It's like, Dwight, you can't take your pants off in the middle of a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Andy comes in. I am literally stabbing Phyllis right now or something like that. In the know. neck with a. No, it's. Um, Oh, oh, wow, that's going to kill me. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. He like, claims he's murdering he's, someone. Yeah, he's cutting Phyllis's head off with the chainsaw. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, he really ruins Weird it. Weird how the Gems of the Office podcast. Sorry, Jacob. I don't, I gotta, I gotta I've seen right like is, 30% of that show. Hey, it's a phenomenal show, but can we just all agree, Andy ruins much of the Office. <laughs> he, especially season nine, oh my goodness, what a terrible Okay, character. you're going to okay. have to remind me which one is Andy. Is Andy is the, the one guy from, the hangover. from The Hangover. Yeah, that's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, okay. that he, he's terrible. He plays some good roles in The Office early on. Yeah, he's got late. a few good. Like, yeah, like when he punches the wall, it's kind of funny. <laughs> but like later on, he he's a liability for the show. When they just bad. make him the, like, the replacement man, for yeah. Michael Scott, it's like, we get it. He, he was dentist in the hangover. Doesn't do it right. I mean, there's only one. Can Michael we get Scott. can we get a Stanley appreciation though? Dude, yes. Stanley, Stanley is so Did I good. stutter? Yeah, dude, he <laughs> is fantastic. Okay, all right. What else we got? Oh, well. 
thank you for joining us again for another episode of the Gems of History podcast, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our little ramble about The Office. I thought you were about to introduce us again. I'm like, Jacob, we did that already. <laughs> I mean, I can. Let's see you, what else If you want, if you want another sleep. go at it. I, I can... That's okay. Let's move on. <laughs> it's too much pressure. Yeah. Way too much pressure. As I'm about to speak for the next hour and a half. <laughs> well, before you start speaking, we got some trivia questions to go through. So since it is your day today, we will let you start if you are good with that. Sure, no problem. So my trivia question for you boys today is, while in power, Pope Gregory the Ninth declared that these animals were to be associated with devil worship and had them exterminated throughout Europe. Was it A, rabbits? Can we do this already? No. B. He's had a lot of like similar themes. Oh, but oh, a lot not, of animals. Not the same questions, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot of exter- oh, no. The last one was redheads or something. Yeah. The last one was the redheads being vampires. And then before that, it was a pig getting hung. Oh, you have an incredible I memory. Think, yeah, he does. I think that was it. I can't uh, remember like yesterday. You remember <laughs> that? My obscure trivia. That's impressive. I really interrupted you. Go ahead. No, it's all right. Um, so, anyway, I'll just read the question again and go through the answers. While in power, Pope Gregory the Ninth declared that these animals were to be associated with devil worship and had them exterminated throughout Europe. A. Rabbits B. Rats C. Bats or D. Cats I'm thinking cats or rats. See, I think B, C, and D all seem like obvious answers. Yeah, but I feel like bats are really hard to Is get a hold of. Is it the ats that really... really no, I think bats are like hard to it's get. It's just like, oh, like bats, rats, and cats. Oh, wow. Wow. You literally rhymed all of those nice. Uh, but well, not rab... Unless we went like rab bats. That's the only one that kind of sticks out. Wow. No, but like... I don't even know how to respond to I that. Feel like, I feel like rats... I feel like B through D all have some sort of like negative stigma attached okay. to them. Okay. Whereas rabbits really mm. like are looked at more of like an innocent animal. Yeah, you know I, mean? I agree. Have you actually so, seen some of the medieval like pictures by chance? So only a ton of medieval drawings and books. Like they think like rabbits are constantly just killing people. Like really? in well, these they images. did in Monty Python. Yeah, yeah, that one was ruthless. Yeah, that was a ruthless bunny. The holy hand grenade, though. Can you yeah. imagine throwing a whole ass grenade at a bunny? <laughs> hey, you you gotta do what you gotta do. I also do. had a bunny Not... growing up that ran away, and I haven't forgiven him. So maybe it is rabbit. Maybe it is a. Okay, there's uh there's this anime that I watch called Re Zero, and there's like this. I don't remember what they call it. It's like a, a horror of nature or something like that, but it's just like a bunch of rabbits with red eyes and they repopulate so fast that you can't kill them off unless you like literally have an army to kill them all at the same time. That's terrifying. And it there's just this like super graphic scene of like the rabbits tearing this guy apart and like crawling under his skin and stuff. Oh, so oh, it's pretty no, gross. Oh, that's Mark terrible. sounds like you and your hamsters growing up. Oh, like, we don't talk can't. about that. I'm scarred for life. Let's keep <laughs> let's keep it moving. <laughs> okay, I'm going right, I'm on. I'm gonna go with cats though. I you think it's cats? Okay, I also think it's cats. But here's the thing: I have seen Sherlock Holmes the first with Robert Downey. Yeah, and rats are prevalent in that movie. That's true. But yeah. killing all the rats—that's an impossible mission. Whereas killing a lot of cats, maybe. I'm going rats though. I'm going rats. Cats, come on! I mean, the Egyptians love them. Leave them alone. So 
Pope Gregory thought that cats were associated yes. with devil yes. worship and had them promptly executed throughout Europe, which, if you recall, my fellow history oh. beefs, this led to the Black Plague. Yes, play. I actually did know this. Oh, and because I didn't even, of the rats. Yeah, because I of didn't the rats. even know that. Oh, I dude, didn't even remember all. that. Because I knew there were about no that, cats yeah. to hunt them. Yeah, because it's something to do. This is I was listening to something, and they were like, "Why are black cats like considered bad?" And they brought up this fact where they yep. killed all the cats, and then the black plague spread so much more. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. And like, that's just one of those medieval facts that just kind of blow your mind. Like, the religious figurehead just kind of hated this animal, and led to the extinction, or not extinction, but like calling of the population of yeah. all of Europe and a huge majority of the world. I just, okay, the, when, do you remember learning about the wars during the Black Plague era where they would literally, like, fling infected bodies over, like, city walls and stuff? Yeah, that's a big uh, part of how it started, too, I'm pretty what sure. What a wild time. It was German not warfare. Not a good way. No. <laughs> yeah. What did... how, was, how was that on the wackiest wars? And then they threw Honestly. dead guys over. But that was, like, chemical warfare basically yeah Yeah, dude disease is scary yeah but yeah we've said it once we've said it a million times no one likes to be sick no one no one does especially with the black spot men are known not to like being sick particularly yeah we kind of turn into babies when we get sick illness is not our strong suit oh yeah i'm the biggest baby yeah i think too i mean guys aren't sick that often but when they are uh uh-oh yeah yeah (laughs) Ugh. All right, Mark, you want to hit us stairs right away? Sure. I, you know, I kind of want to get, want, I don't know why I keep doing this. I could go rapid fire. <laughs> so if it's too easy, I'm not letting you get off the hook. But I don't think this one is that easy. When it comes to like, um, great leaders. Okay, here we go. Who said the following? Never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. Sun Tzu, Alexander the Great, or Napoleon? That would be A, Sun Yeah, Tzu. Was Sun Tzu. That was Napoleon, Ooh, my friends. Wow. It was Napoleon. I can't it. Never interrupt Dang. your enemy when he is making a mistake. I can't believe this is coming from the guy that got attacked by 3,000 rabbits. Hey, hey, he made a mistake, all right? And his enemies didn't interrupt him, huh? No, they didn't. True, they, they just didn't want any. Do you all have right. any, like, <clears throat> when did he say that? Just, like, to his army or? Um, he doesn't say when he said it. But it sounds like something that he would have said to like his at the time cabinet or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know when he said it, but interesting. Yeah, it's I a good. Know. It's it's a good thing to say. I mean, it, it makes sense. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. Did he, I don't know. I don't. I don't know all the story about Napoleon. Did he have any insider threats? Was anyone trying to take his leadership from him at any point? Well, I mean, there was a coup, wasn't there? And that's how he got exiled. I honestly don't know. I'm kind of speaking for the hip here. I, but I believe he got exiled um, from France to an island in the Mediterranean. And then he made a comeback, tried to do his whole like world domination shit again. That didn't work out I, for him. Out of all of like these big world leaders, I, I know probably know the Napoleon. least about Napoleon. Yeah. So, and yet he's super famous. I know. Dude. I yeah. I no. I agree with you. So I thought it was kind of funny that one. I'm gonna do one more. I'm cheating. But I'm gonna do one more that I thought was interesting and I want to. I'm not taking a I'm shot. I'm not taking yeah, this wrong. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. Who was the first emperor of unified China in 259 BC? Taizong, Gaozu. Kishi 
Hoang. Is that it? Yep. Okay. I don't know if you had four. <laughs> First th- emperor of unified China, 259 BC. Can you say them again? Yeah. Taizong, Gaozu, Qixi Huang. That would be B, the Zhu or Zhou dynasty. I almost combined A and B and said Taizu, but that's not right. It was actually I'm gonna Mushu. S- <laughs> oh, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I was going to say B2, but since we both got the last one wrong together, I'd rather get one wrong and Evan get it right. So I'm going to say A. Wow, you guys are both wrong. It was Kishi. Yeah, we, we suck at wow. this. Oh. All right, all right, and we have less options with his questions. Hey, yeah. you're the one with glasses. You're supposed to be the smart one right now. <laughs> I don't know. All right, I don't work here. I'm right? tapped out. Too. The fake, the fake Harry Potter glasses. <laughs> all right, let's they see. Look pretty Let, good. Let's let's see what you guys think about this. All right. In what way did America decide to distinguish itself from the British in 1902? A, took the letter U out of the word color. B, spelled gray with an A instead of an E. C, changed the direction of stripes on their ties. Or D, put outlet or D, putting outlets in their bathrooms. I'm going. Oh, shoot! What am I going? B or C for sure. Are there, wow, that one's tough. I don't want to. I don't think it's outlets. I don't think outlets were a thing yet. <laughs> I know, like obviously, electricity was invented, but I mean, like a plug-in outlet. <laughs> I mean. We had light bulbs and stuff, so no. But I'm thinking like I plug my phone charger, or my. I'm probably overthinking this. Probably. I don't know. I've had a few drinks, so overthink yeah, away, dude. <laughs> um, ties sounds first. familiar, which actually makes me. Th- you going which one? No, I mean you. Can, you can go first. Oh, I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, I, I, remember. I defer. <laughs> I defer. I, I abstain like, from this question. I, I remember some <laughs> I sort of tie thing coming up when I was in grade school or something. I I don't know, dude. I'm going C. You know, I'm sticking to my gut. I Just for some reason, it sounds right. But were ties worn? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so A was the I'm going C. color. A was taking the U out of the word color. B was spelling gray with an A instead of E. C was changing the direction of stripes on their ties, and D was putting outlets in their bathrooms. Here's the kicker. It's, there are two letter-related answers in there, yeah. which which should narrow it down to A and B. So really, I should switch my answer to one of those, and you take the other one, and one of us will be right. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. So I guess if we're going to do that, then I would go B. I'll go A. Let's, let's roll the dice. All right. Don't make me get the horse game. Yeah. <laughs> in 1902, America changed the direction of stripes on their tie. No, Evan, you screwed. No, I screwed myself. Oh, my yeah, <laughs> dude. Oh my ears and my ears and the ear. I got so loud. No, but I I do remember actually hearing that tie thing sometime uh, during yeah. growing up. I do recall. Yeah. That. <clears throat> so uh, we decided that we didn't want to look like we were copying the British because. The British had the stripes going. It was called from heart to sword, which was they had it going from left to right, from like their heart down to where their sword would be on their hip because of their military background. And uh, so America was like, well, we don't want to copy them or look like we're doing the same thing they are. 
So we decided to take the material for the ties, cut it up, and then direction it the other way to be different. And that's where we got the reverse stripe rep tie. In reverse rattle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, Tim will appreciate Inside it. Joke, I yeah. really hope Tim will. Uh, but yeah, so, but the outlet thing, that's like true to this day. There ha- in the UK, there's a law stating like, you have to have your outlets a certain distance away from running water. Yeah, you're right. My uh, parents actually went to Ireland, was it two years ago? And they said, like, it was the craziest thing. Yeah, I was reading an article to, like, find different... Obviously, that's not the UK, but I was, same. Yeah, I read an article to, like, find different answers that were, like, actually pretty accurate. And I was reading an article. It was a couple, and one of them was from the UK, and one was from the US, and the one that was from the UK was like astounded that there was outlets in the bathroom and was like so scared that something was going to happen because they were so close to the sinks and stuff like that. So that is, I can't imagine like that's so annoying. Yeah. It, so little, little differences here and there Yeah, yeah. that you don't really think about, but yeah. Well, very neat. Heck yeah. All right, Evan, while well, you are our topic master for the day. So. Yes, yes, and I'm super excited for this one. Been kind of sending Snapchats to yeah. my two co-hosts all day. Just I set the table up that we record on probably at like 11 Yeah, we usually like get together to record and start recording around like 5-ish. So he, yeah, was, was, he was pretty pumped. I was super jacked for this one, and this topic really resonates with me. Um, you've heard it before. I mean, I talk about it all the time, even talked about it a little bit last week, but today's topic, boys, we are diving into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean one, two, and three. <laughs> yes! Finally! <laughs> no. Oh, today, wait. Finally, that was last time. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Where were you last week? We are diving into Samurai. Ooh, yes. So we're going back to Japan, which you've heard, the listeners have heard me talk about it so many times. I love Love, love, love. I mean, Jacob, you do too. Mark, I actually don't think we've talked about it too much, but love Japanese culture just as a whole. Okay, so when you, samurai. when you said we were doing samurai for some reason, I thought of the meow, 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 And I was like, wait, that's Egypt. That's way off. We're all on the same page. I literally, good thing I didn't do that. You've been a little off. It's fine. But just some background, like the reason why, like I say, I love Japanese culture. I love samurai. Uh, a lot of it came like as a kid, me watching kind of cartoons and especially kind of the anime versions of like Samurai Jack. Yeah, I've uh, been rewatching that lately because it's, it's on so HBO good. Max. It's so, so good. Uh, I Rony. didn't. Re- I didn't realize how many just like straight up montages of people running there are in that show until I rewatched it. 80% of the yep. just What's running. that new Samurai video game that everyone's hyping up through the roof? I think it's, on, oh, I think it's a PlayStation exclusive. Ghost of, Ghost of Tsushima. Dude, yeah. I've heard that game it is looks, incredible. It yes. looks nuts. Just the it looks, looks about it. Even if there's the gameplay is bad, which it's not. I've heard it's like a 10 out of 10 I've all watched around. gameplay videos. And, oh, man. It Does looks it look insane. beautiful or yeah, what? It looks so good. It's oh. so unfair that I have an Xbox and then playstation just goes and makes my literal perfect game that i would love you almost need both you almost need both yeah. consoles at this point yeah 
would at this that point yeah, that's, really they're, they're almost at the point where it's like a streaming service where like you need to have Both. hulu yeah. for something mm-hmm. netflix for something mm-hmm. amazon for something like because game pass is the better deal i think overall for a console but the exclusives right now on playstation playstation's definitely outdone xbox as far as exclusives go lately yeah us three should get together and play that game sometime that'd be really i am 100 percent down for that yeah. Ooh, if we start a twitch channel Ooh. Oh, gems of history! Plugs it. He plugs that real quick. Remember yeah. when we talked about a video game podcast hey, on episode someday, two? It could still someday. be in the pipes. Someday, yeah. you know, we, we get to it. You never know. But anyway, I mean, just going back, that's where I really got my roots and love of Japanese culture, love of samurai. Um, also, uh, the last samurai featuring Tom Cruise, which at the time, so people on the internet don't yell at me quite yet. At the time when I watched it as a kid in the early two thousands, I was like, okay, this is a sick movie. They're samurai. I mean, Tom Cruise, I love Top Gun. I remember watching that at your house with you. Oh, like all the time. Retrospect, movie is pretty fucked up that Tom Cruise is the last samurai and a bunch of other things about that movie, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but yeah, I know you've been getting into more anime and stuff too lately. Yeah. So I mean, just makes me very happy because then I have someone to nerd with about. Ever since we started, like, obviously doing this and just hanging out more again, all I watch. It's so, recently is that there's so many out there and so many like interesting ones right. there's a lot of really freaking weird ones but there's a lot of really good ones too that is very true so. and with a lot of them like it's the only medium that can actually make the stories work yeah in my opinion like a live action version of some of them just have no chance no but. way yeah anywho again we're diving into samurai today and what i want to get accomplished today we're gonna dive into the actual origins of samurai we're going to briefly go over like the weaponry and their code. We're going to go over three of some of the unknown samurai that people really don't talk about who are just complete badasses in their own right. And then finally, we're going to end with my personal favorite story of samurai culture, samurai history, that Bushido way. So are you guys ready? Yeah, 100%. Let's get into it. So we're going to start out with the origins of the samurai. So the word samurai, which I'm sure most of you know, also this came from The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, but again, we're not talking about that today. The word samurai means one who serves, and originally in the 1100s, like probably like 1185 AD, it referred to men of noble birth who were assigned to guard members of the imperial court. So if you kind of think, like going to Game of Thrones for whatever reason, you know how like kind of the secondborns, the thirdborns, the people that weren't going to inherit land, they were the ones that were, quote unquote, like kind of shipped off to guard members of the royal family, to guard members of the shogunate, to guard you know that imperial court. So their service ethic spawned the roots, or this service ethic spawned the roots of samurai nobility, and had a huge impact on both the social and spiritual aspects of japanese culture almost essentially from the start so the quote-unquote samurai age or the feudal age was from like essentially i'm ballparking this 1100s like the 1800s yeah because japan for a while wanted to like pretty much have like isolation periods where they just didn't want any outside influences so it like periods like this the feudal period just lasted so long because Mm -hmm. they didn't have anyone else coming in so yeah they were entirely resistant to it in the 1800s that's where the uh what's called the meiji restoration which we won't get into today that'll probably be something i'll cover in the future one of us will but the meiji restoration is essentially passing the torch on to 
Japan become a more modernized country at the time, you know, accepting firearms or more firearms, I should say, uh, accepting more trade practices, uh, all that stuff. But for 700 years, these samurai and the daimo, daimo, excuse me, essentially ruled the country with an iron fist, um, as well as the shogunate, who was the seat of power. But again, we'll get into all that as we go on. So this is before they started settling their differences with Yu-Gi-Oh! Monster cards. Yes, this is before Exodia. No, those that's were like one. during the ancient times, remember? They had those. That's why oh, the pyramids so they are important. they using them and for a while. They used them in the past and then... Well, I guess they just... They, they held them too sacred. For some yeah. reason, just seeing you well actually marked with like Harry Potter glasses... Congrats <laughs> me with the Harry <laughs> Which again, he may or may not be wearing. Who knows? Yeah. It's a mystery. Foamy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do we kind of count that as Mark's first swear on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's close as we're going to get, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so back to the story. <laughs> um, like I said, in the 1100s, uh, there was a centralized government, but that government was having a lot of trouble maintaining a control of the nation, and they began outsourcing their military, their administrative, and their tax-collecting duties to former rivals, rival samurai, rival daimo, were essentially regional governors. So to kind of put in perspective, imagine the central government of the United States just giving more and more control to state governments. So as the imperial court grew weaker, local governors, these daimo, became more powerful. And some of the most powerful samurai grew to rule multiple territories, actually completely independent of the central government. So this is where the samurai were truly born in this almost separation from the central government and they had more devotion to their local feudal lord these daimo well because i would assume that those local lords were the ones that were p- giving them the pay and they everything. were one that was feeding them yeah like, literally so, whether they, like whether it's pay or just like housing and food either yeah. way like they're the ones giving it to them why would they have any more loyalty to someone who's not giving them anything right 100 percent. so mm-hmm. So, like I mentioned, these samurai were extremely loyal to their masters, these daimo. And true to the unwritten code of chivalrous behavior known today as Bushido, which translates to Way of the Warrior, which is just so cool. Yeah. Almost as cool as Way of the Fist by Five Finger Death Punch. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> know that one. Sure. <laughs> no, it's not. It's way cooler. Trust me. Uh, and now the samurai are basically. Considered... What? Oh, sorry. What, Mark? It's so stupid. <laughs> and I have something even stupider. Well, I was going to ask if he's going to get into the explanation of how Chris Farley ends up on that Japanese <laughs> game show. Domo. Guaki Sir Pete. Niku? No, no, Guaki Sir Don't you have it? Oh, man. Call the American Embassy. <laughs> Chris Farley, what an actual legend. True. Dude, rest in peace. Yeah, true hero. And then he was also in a movie called Beverly Hills Ninja. Do you remember that? I've never seen that movie, but it's I've heard Netflix. of it. Just the biggest dude as a ninja. Rip. Represent Wisconsin. That's right. Yep. But anyway, these samurai, I mean, like I was saying before, 
they're pretty much synonymous with Japan, with Japanese culture. I mean, when you think of samurai, you think of Japan and vice versa. So they kind of essentially get that same mantra, that same kind of romanticism as, you know, knights, as like cowboys in America, like that Western like cowboy. So essentially they're just synonymous with their country. So now I just kind of want to do a quick turn and kind of dive into Bushido. For those that don't know, the coat Bushido was that code of honor and morals that developed that was developed by the Japanese samurai. And again, this was pretty much unwritten. It was kind of those unwritten rules. And it consisted of there were eight pillars. It was justice, courage, mercy, politeness, honesty, honor, loyalty, and self-control. Now, I'm not going to take any time to compare it to chivalry, but essentially, these morals and this code is extremely similar to that of knights in Europe, which I thought was super interesting because, I mean, these two groups never interacted. Like, knights never interacted with samurai. So I just thought it was extremely interesting that there was that parallel, despite being worlds apart, completely different, you know, ideologies, religions, etc., they're still not ideologies, religions. There was still like this kind of natural code of honor that developed among two completely different sets of people. So, Mark, I can defer to you as far as like modern military mm-hmm. practices go. Like, is there some sort of code that you guys uh, adhered to as far as like that kind of thing? Honor, courage, commitment, baby. Is that what it is? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's okay. It is. Yeah. There's like a creed too that mm-hmm. like I'm not going to say. Yeah, you know. But, but yeah, yep. So honor, courage, commitment. Yep. Seems like those yeah. are pretty much staples as far as mm-hmm. like universal. Yeah. Where I, do those come from? I mean, other than just being intuition, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I'm sure that some of it comes from past history. So, yeah. I mean, I just love drawing those parallels, like between all the different people of earth who, again, never really interacted together, like different sides of the world, but they're still like kind of that same natural law natural moral yeah and i think everyone that goes to like the moral compass aspect where like everyone knows that inherently certain things are or should be more valued than others in a in a majority of people that way and also people who are you know there's a lot of people who are super pessimistic and i get why but people are like there's no hope for humanity and all these things it is nice to see examples where human humanity does know its limits too. Like they, there is inherent good in a large aspects of humanity where they just mm-hmm. know when things are fundamentally wrong. Right. Or what is right. Yep. But so, yeah. And then the thing with us also though, is like, we know what's good, but we also like to focus on those outliers because it's so much more of a minority and it's, that's what we decide to, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? So No, I, you're right. We focus maybe on the people who are doing wrong. Yeah. But I think... I think if we you... just have a fascination with things that don't occur as commonly as sure. like the norm, you know? You know, in some weird ways, maybe that's a good thing. Because if, it, if we see something that's wrong and go that that's an outlier or like that's fascinating because it doesn't happen normally... We don't take it as something that should be a normality, right? Which is probably a good thing. But yeah, yeah it's it's also it's probably the reason why crime. I'm sorry, Dave. No, yeah. go ahead. I was just saying that's probably the reason why like crime dramas and like crime documentaries. Oh, hundred. So that's why. I mean, yeah, we that's all why true crime and stuff up. has been such a big topic in mm-hmm. the past like five, ten years, just because people like hearing about those people that break the norm and 
like break all these rules that are unwritten in like a human moral. There was a psychology in my college psychology class. I forget who the psychologist was, but he talked about like that human code. Like some people like mass murderers, like they obviously kind of break that social code, like not to murder someone, but they'll still like stop at a stoplight. Yeah. You know, they'll stop for science, right. stop signs. How are we on this topic? All right, we're the gems of philosophy. No, no, I actually want to touch on that. So you know how they talk about – there's always this debate between are morals inherently within you or is everything at some point based on society and how you were brought up by your parents? Nature versus nurture. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that if we were a bunch of barbarians, right, or maybe go back in time. I'm not saying that you wouldn't be maybe more or less likely, depending on your scenario, to, let's just say, murder somebody. My question would be, inherently, if you go back in the day, I'm talking like caveman type level, does murdering trigger any aspect of you that goes, that was less than ideal, as opposed to it's just something that happens? I think that's always going to be something that people debate, but... And I don't know. I have no. I don't have any scientific fiber in my brain. Part of me thinks fundamentally because there's so much emotion. Humans are just emotional creatures. I mean, we don't want dogs to die, let alone humans. So I do think that there's a lot of um, hate that can maybe minimize how you Mm -hmm. feel about killing somebody. Unfortunately, you know that that can maybe minimize it. But I fundamentally don't think that even back then, killing while maybe lesser than it's considered today, because there's just really no place for it. Uh, I do still think it triggers some mental or emotional aspect that you go like, I would have preferred that not to happen. I don't mm-hmm. know that. I'm not a scientist, but I would imagine. Oh, and I agree that I think in most cases, for most people, it would be like, if I did yeah, accident, yeah. even if I did it on purpose in the heat of some sort sure. of emotional state, I think most people would be in the mindset like, I didn't mean to do this or sure. this is something I didn't want to happen. Yeah, but, yeah. There's, like, in the case of serial killers, like, a lot of the times, it's a mix of nature versus nurtures. It's both. I agree with that. But how many times do we see mass murderers with, like, um, an inherent mental disconnection? Or, uh, nah, mental's unreal, because I don't want to make it come across the wrong way. Almost like an emotional disconnect. It's like this weird thing. If you can disconnect your mind and your, I will call it heart, but I don't mean your literal heart, but, you know, your emotional aspect of your of your health. If those things are disconnected, or let's just say one part of it is dead, your emotional part is just doesn't work. Yeah, properly. and that goes into bipolar and yeah. stuff like that. It's, it's so, all of these different things yeah. that can factor into it and make you into a person. You can basically shut off your emotional part and just make it about the action that you're doing. And then after the fact, you can turn it back on and not really think about what you just did because you weren't emotionally invested at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'll say the other way. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'm going to say before we get back into Samurai is I don't know how we got this far off. But Hey, bro, Bushido. I mean, again, it's... <laughs> I mean, yeah. the way of honor. I mean... Like, yeah. yeah, and like kind of foreshadowing, not foreshadowing, but I mean, eventually when Japan was pacified, I mean, when there were no more need for Samurai, they essentially became artists and philosophers so i mean in their honor we're doing the same thing right now so go ahead yeah the last thing i was gonna say about it is and people who want to say it's largely about upbringing how many people had terrible upbringings or didn't have families or just life was hard to them 
and they still picked a better path or like still benefited society in tremendous ways. So to say that your upbringing defines you specifically or there is an inherent good in humanity if they're not brought up a certain way or whatever. I don't know. I just can't buy into all that because I feel like there's been too many things that show humanity inherently has some things that say this is right or this is wrong. And I know that there's a lot of constructs that help uh, discern that more intently so that they don't do wrong. I'm not saying that you don't need the confines of society to help with that. But fundamentally, I don't know if to your core, you simply decided good or bad based on where you come from or anything like that. I think I I, I yeah, think that I somebody mean, who hasn't had no yeah. preconceived notions of right or wrong, I think can have some inherent conception of right or wrong. I think oh, everyone yeah, has that just yeah. when they're born. It just depends on whether you stick to it as you grow or sure. whether you believe for yourself like this isn't something I need to grow up with because people around me aren't growing up with those and why should I do it if they're not kind of thing. Sure. And I think the nurture part also includes just the environment, not necessarily just like your home life or your parentage. Like where'd you go to school? What city did you grow up in? Yeah. How did those people act? It's a lot of different things. So, I mean, yeah, no, definitely a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. That's why psychology is super fascinating. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. The study of the brain is, we still don't know a lot about brains. Like there's still right? places where you can get a lobotomy and yeah. we've known for years now that lobotomies really aren't that great for a person to get. So, I mean, yep. we're as far as like neuroscience and everything, we've come leaps and bounds, but we're still kind of in the dark ages. So mm-hmm. anyways, let's, let's hop back into uh, Bushido. Well, back to Bushido and just kind of that samurai code. So I just listed, not just, but like I listed the uh, eight pillars of kind of what Bushido was centered around. But with that was a tremendous respect for your enemy. Now, one like pure example of this was Yusegi Kenshin and Takeda Shingen. Now, these two, um, in the time of the warring states in Japan, which essentially set them up for kind of what Japan is today, led to the first time Japan was ever completely unified. These two were extreme rivals. They were fighting for decades, decades and decades. Samurai to the core. And when Takeda Shingen actually died, Yusegi Kenshin wept for his enemy and said, I have lost my good rival. We won't have, and this is a quote, I have lost my good rival. We won't have a hero like that ever again. So, I mean, there's just such a respect for an enemy. I mean, this was their lives. I mean, they lived this very strict code. It was their lives. I mean, they had tremendous respect for their enemies at the time. I mean, it's super fascinating to me. Uh, just that Bushido code and very, very strict code as well. Um, but, yeah. I mean, you live your life fighting the same guy for years and years and years. Yeah. So, I mean, it becomes kind of a livelihood for you. So, when that person passes away you're kind of losing a huge part of what made you you so like if batman lost a joker or vice versa what would they do okay why'd you have to bring that up have you guys seen the and batman and i'll see you guys joker? in like about 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> you guys seen the, that they made a batman joker samurai anime yeah this, I, this was in the I last year or two really i heard yeah. it's i heard it's good so i mean I'm not going to go into depth. Just that if you two, I know you two like anime, and obviously Batman's dope as hell. I love that dude. So 
If you guys want to check that out, definitely. It sounds check. cool as hell. Yeah, so. Definitely it's look into that. Literally everything I love superheroes and samurai. So, yeah. If cool somehow stuff. pirates got in there, I'd be all for it. <laughs> right. like, like, I think it's R rated. So I think it's pretty gra- uh, not like graphic in like a dirty bad okay. way, but I think it's bloody. <laughs> yeah. DC bloody. makes such good animated stuff, but their live action stuff is just. How very is, how subpar you know what's so crazy if you oh man we're gonna get a little off <laughs> okay if you compare marvel to dc anim, uh animated it's not even close yeah dc is king and the minute it's live action it's like what happened marvel just takes now, over. I, yeah. i've heard such good things about this dc snyder cut i've heard everyone's hyping this snyder cup cut up of the justice league film or whatever well, we'll find out. It's four hours long. It has no right to be four hours long. If you're not the climactic, you know, movie that if was not, Endgame. Yeah, if you're yeah. not the end of a 21 other movies, you have series, no yeah. business being they didn't over need two that. and a half they, hours I guess long. they didn't need Endgame to be four hours long because they had 21 other movies or whatever. Fair. But I guess, uh, but. anyway, all I'm saying is, I'm, and I'm not plugging this because I, I, mean, I got no beef and skin in the game, but. Uh, I heard this Snyder cut four hours long. If you can get through it, now I, I know it's chopped up into parts. Literally, like there's scenes that say part one, two, three. Like they literally. But uh, I heard it was really good. So go and check it out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How did we get I so don't know. far? Off? No, because the Batman uh, samurai thing. <laughs> have you seen the Batman Joker samurai? Thing? I just have. To, I haven't. Oh. But I just have to stay just strictly on topic from now. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're already at 45 minutes. Oh, my oh, gosh. Jeepers. And we have barely touched on yeah. it all. I, I mean, I'll cut some four. of this down, but. <laughs> all right, here we go. No, I mean, people have been asking for longer episodes. Well, yeah, but, I mean, just in general, I have to. Yeah. So, for close to 700 years, the samurai essentially ruled Japan through their katanas. Now, I do want to dive in a little bit about the katana because it's such an integral part, not only of samurai but just japanese culture and it's if you think about that sort has had such an impact on just pop culture even the united states i mean there's so many different shows movies etc where katana is featured i mean we had a friend that literally had a, a stack of three of them, yeah, three of them. at his parents <laughs> house so that's right yeah so it's literally unlike any other blade in existence it's so unique because it's literally just one sharp edge and the other one's dull. But the way it's curved and the way it's made makes it the perfect slicing weapon. So it can literally, and this is unlike pretty much any other blade in existence, it can cut through a man with one swipe. I mean, if you apply enough force to it. You can cut yourself just by looking. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, oh, but yeah, that's, man. I mean, that's true because... <clears throat> In uh, Europe, when they would execute people by beheading, mm-hmm. they would use like a great sword, one of those big swords. And what they would do is they would have to have the guy spin the sword around in a circle like a couple times before he hit to try and decapitate someone. Yep. So uh, you had to have a bunch of force behind it. But with the katana, you could probably just do like a good, like a really good hard swipe and do the same thing. So exactly. And the maker of the original katana, his name was Amakune. And he made the first katana in Yamato province around 700 AD. And he made it because he noticed that a bunch of the samurai were coming back with broken swords when they were fighting off Mongol invaders. So he brought up the ghost of Tsushima before. That's actually kind of what that premise is. Samurai versus um, uh, Mongol invaders. And that essentially birthed the katana. They started making these swords with the finest iron sand ore. And he built the katana with that curve which made it optimal for slicing through enemies. And now 
Obviously, this is myth. But legend has it that Amukune, death is not known, and that he earned immortality from all the blood that his blades absorbed. Kind of dope. It will be kind of cool. He just never died because all of his blades just had all the blood. <laughs> just recycling well. blood. The first vampire? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Let's keep her moving. Yeah. <laughs> now, the creation of the katana, like each individual one, was super important. It was so vital that Shinto priests were called in to bless the process as well as the final product of the sword. And they performed spiritual purifications of the different swordsmiths. And the creators, like these swordsmiths of the katanas, were actually considered artists. On level, like in Japan, on the same level, uh, the sources that I looked at, on the same level as like essentially Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. Because this was their culture. I mean, there really wasn't much paintings going on because that was a time of war. It was 700 years of war, essentially. So these swordsmiths were the artists at the time. Metallurgy is an art. It's oh, 100%. The way like they forging can... and everything, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. The way can they can take just ground, essentially, and make it into... Like a, a katana is yeah. super impressive. Well, knowing how to heat it and how to cool it and how to... And especially with the katanas, if you're off by like two degrees, the whole thing's done. So it has to be literally like the perfect make every single time, which is super impressive. And I mean, these the swordsmiths were, again, artists. And now the katana, going back to the samurai, it was such a crucial part of a samurai's life. That when a warrior was actually being born, they would bring in the katana into the same room to serve as a protector and to greet the young one at birth. So essentially, you are a warrior at the start of your life. I mean, from day one, I mean, a lot of these guys didn't have a choice. And that was just kind of the culture. Like if you think about, um, again, making parallels like Spartans. I mean, all the men had to serve, like, in the army. I mean, this was essentially the same thing. It actually calls to, like, military individuals with their rifles. I mean, not, 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 it's not on the same level, per se, because they weren't there at, at birth, per se. But, uh, you know, they kind of taught, like, for the Marines example, like, they literally, like, sleep with their rifle. And if your rifle is dirty, like, you're dirty. So it's kind of interesting how that has kind of continued a trend that your weapon is like a part of your, an extension of yourself, more well, or less. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, obviously, but you can think about it like if you have a pet or something. I mean, you sleep with your pet and stuff like that, yeah. so it's it's a part of like your life and yeah, your lifestyle. Yeah, you care for it. You take yeah. care of it. Yep. It's, it's something that's very near and dear to your lifestyle. So, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, totally. I mean, from early like boyhood, I mean, these guys were instructed in kenjutsu which was the martial art of sword fighting which quick very quick summary i mean it consisted of five different strokes top to bottom bottom top left right right left and through the throat a lot of strokes (laughs) (laughs) guys are taught how to stroke huh as soon as i said it as soon as i said i'm like here (laughs) but anyway by, by the 12th century uh the skills of the samurai became super legendary throughout japan honestly across the world because they did pete hoff Fuck. oh my dude you uh, you are literally 
I'm literally setting you guys up. Yeah. It's not even our fault. <laughs> no, I, we you guys have We yeah. take no responsibility. Oh jeepers. How did your parents raise you? <laughs> yeah. So again, their skills became legendary throughout all of Asia. And we're going to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for the samurai, battle was really the only way to earn honor or to get, I mean, if you had your honor soiled in any way, to redeem yourself was through battle. Uh. Now, it was considered extremely dishonorable to be captured or defeated in battle. That makes sense. Yep, exactly. So this led to... What the samurai call seppuku. Monster and now, gods. if you do not want to hear about what this is, because it is very graphic, maybe skip like 30 seconds in your no, podcast. They got this. They got this. I will right. describe it a little bit. We'll give you a happy smiley face sticker if you make it through. Yeah. <laughs> Just like a, you're basically saying like you get a COVID-19 vaccine, you get a sticker. If you listen to me describe seppuku. <laughs> You get a sticker. Yeah, this is gonna be a trigger warning for suicide. So, yep. So essentially, where this came from, I mean, if a samurai failed to fulfill his obligation, like also known as like full service, to his lord, his daimo, he was dishonored and also punished. So if they lost like any single battle, they did not serve their lord well enough. And keep in mind, this is completely ingrained in their head from birth. It's instilled in their culture. For 700 years. So this led to a lot of samurai committing seppuku whenever there was a defeat. And it was a brutal way of suicide where a man would actually uh, take a blade into his stomach. Because they, at the time, they thought that that's where the soul was stored. In your abdomen and your stomach. And he would cut a 25 centimeter wide hole... Uh, horizontally in his stomach and would grab his guts out of his belly and hold them in his hand while a man behind him known as the Keisha Kukin, excuse me Keisha Kunin would swing his katana from behind severing his head but in most cases not severing it to actually cutting it off and it'd be so precise that the head would stay on and that the body would fall forward in almost a kneeling position, giving one last bow to both his ancestors and his lord. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. No smiley face for me. Again, I mean, it's super graphic, and to us, I mean, obviously, like, that's insane. I mean, you lost a battle, and you do it, but you have to keep in mind, like, this was their culture. I no, mean, yeah, this is 100%. This is basically, like, a code of life. Exactly, and from all my sources, if you lost a battle, if you were defeated, not only were you ashamed, your entire family was ashamed. Dishonor on your whole family. You're dishonoring a cow. <laughs> yeah. Your entire clan so, was ashamed. Do you talk about if you're like, who did their training to make them so good? Oh, so I did skip over that a little bit in the interest of time. So that's where Kenjutsu came in. So there was always a sword master who a young samurai would learn everything from him. From A, drawing the sword to be the most efficiently draw, efficiently drawn, excuse me, as well as how to cut down an enemy in every single possible way. This is actually the mindset of the samurai was super rooted in Zen Buddhism, believe it or not. 
So they would train in a way where they could kill unconsciously, if that makes sense. And you have to remind, these were brutal battles. For example, the Battle of Sekigahara, which was the essentially fought to bring about the Tokugawa Shogunate, excuse me. That battle lasted hours of hand-to-hand combat with katanas, with probably the most highly skilled warriors almost in history. Like, these were brutal, brutal battles. But you also think about it. If they're, they're trained so well that they know how to kill as efficiently as possible, too. So exactly. it's also almost a mercy to be trained as well as they are if you're fighting against them. That is fair. I mean, you leave an opening out. I mean, a skilled warrior is going to essentially right. hit that. Because they were lethal, but they are also, like, decent people. Right. Yeah. They yeah. they were, like he said, they respect their enemies. So they wanted to Very much so, end yeah. their lives as quick. They didn't want to basically endure suffering yeah, on these people. So Pretty cool stuff. I mean, that's why I'm fascinated with it. I mean, sure, it was a brutal lifestyle. I mean, we talked about last time the pirates, like, pirates got romanticized. Samurai, in the same way, get romanticized. But, like, it was still a brutal life. If you weren't one of these daimo, I mean, you were serving your daimo to the point of death, and if you failed, you had to do essentially seppuku, or else dishonor Sudoku. on you, dishonor your cow. All right, I'll stop. This is too serious of a topic for jokes. <laughs> what? I said Sudoku. <laughs> you have to complete this number puzzle. <laughs> High stakes. <laughs> High stakes Sudoku. Oh, man. Oh, boy. But anyway, kind of wrapping up the origins, like I mentioned before, and like that when Japan was pacified with by Tokugawa Ieyasu, there was no real reason to keep on fighting and essentially ended 700 years of just chopping each other up and they all became like poets artists philosophers this is actually when the haiku was born so i mean these samurai essentially traded in their swords for the pen which is super interesting to me and they still live their way for their bushido code just almost in a different way without the actual fighting part of it say that again you said they trade in their samurai sword for a pen or i shouldn't say a pen but well, actually yeah i mean like a pen so- would like a quill i mean there was no one else to fight. Now, the first um, actual pacifier of Japan, uh, give me one second, wasn't Tokugawa Ieyasu. Sure. He was the one that set up the Tokugawa Shogunate that we know today. The first samurai or slash daimo that united Japan completely was Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Now, he actually was able to conquer all of Japan which took him years. Um, he was a peasant, and he became you know, the kind of right-hand man of Oda Nobunaga, who kind of conquered half of Japan, didn't get quite there. He was betrayed, and then Toyotomi Hideyoshi killed the person that betrayed him, essentially became the leader, and then took over the rest of Japan. Now, this guy, he did try to invade Korea and China, didn't work. He was also, by most sources, referred to as a madman, kind of a dictator. Um, but then, um, Togo Ieyasu, uh, years after, uh, defeated him. Didn't defeat him. Uh, defeated his son. 
took over, and that's when the samurai became more peaceful in a way. Okay, so regardless of how peaceful they were or not, does that speak to that the samurai not only were great warriors, but were also overall well-educated individuals? Very much. I mean, they were their own class. And if you kind of think about it, like, essentially, like in most places in the world, like, peasants were nothing. Like, farmers were not, like, farmhands, nothing. So, I mean, these guys were very educated, and through their battles, they were paid very handsomely. Were they... I mean, I'm sure there was largely a speak if spoken to, where samurais just generally thought of as soft-spoken, like they did not talk, really. I, I mean, that was more, I mean, you would never talk back to your daimo, your feudal lord. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I honestly can't answer that, actually. I mean, okay. I'm, I really can't answer that, but, but I mean, well you, would never, speak, you would never speak against authority. Sure, that sure. would be an, almost sure. an instant death sentence. But just because they didn't talk. These samurai were obviously great warriors, but they 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 knew their stuff. Really, like they yes. were educated. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, because when you said put down the sword, kind of picked up the pen, that obviously insinuates to a certain extent these were not these were not dumb people who just were simply warriors that were well uh, learned in fighting. They and they that, also were well rounded characters. Yes, that goes to a difference too between like the samurai and like European knights, though, because I feel like. For the most part, European, like obviously there were some knights that were probably scholars in their own right, but I feel like for the most part, a lot of the knights were more so just men thrown at a fight rather than someone who is well-educated at the same time, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's like completely accurate or not, but I I just feel like as a, a standard that these samurai were probably a little more at least in their culture and history, were more educated than, say, a European knight probably would have been. 100%. And keep in mind, like, samurai, for the most part, were part of some nobility. Like, they came from families that owned land. Yeah. So, I mean, they weren't, like, farmhands. They weren't, you know, peasants. Um, They were people of substance, essentially. And they, again, they were paid pretty pretty well by uh their individual lords or what have you and they were given servants so right which is again when you think about putting away excuse me Good. think about putting away <laughs> yeah think about putting away like your sword after 700 years of your culture i mean your parents your grandparents great great parents so on and so forth putting that away to essentially become almost a philosopher a poet an artist i mean I mean, that's a crazy That's a very big transition in yep. lifestyle. I mean, you're going from bloodshed to mm-hmm. trying to up, like, train the next generation, basically. So, mm-hmm. And also keep in mind, obviously, there was that Meiji Restoration period that we talked a little bit about before, where Japan was trying to basically put away its history a little bit, you know, become more ingrained with the world, become more profitable through trade, trying to break out of what's... I mean, what was essentially done for the last 700 years. It's similar years. to when I went into the uh, pirate age in China, yep. in the South China Sea, where they were restricting trade, not letting foreigners in. It's it's a similar concept, so mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. But So now, what I want to do, like I mentioned before, we're going to talk about three samurai that don't really get talked about too much. I mean, obviously, the top three samurai are you know, the men that built Japan, like Oda Nobunaga, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu, 
and then the man that I mentioned before, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. I mean, those are the most infamous samurai, daimo, what have you, of all time. I mean, they essentially took hundreds of different warring states and brought them all under one banner. Uh, not together. They were rivals at some Yeah, point. right. But, I mean, they eventually did get to that point. But now what I want to do is just talk about three of who I think are some of the most badass samurai of all time and then tell you two my favorite story of samurai slash Bushido culture. Cool. So to start off, we have Tomo Gozen. Now she, so... Hell yeah. Heyo, queen, queen, yes, queen, queen, queen. I've also made a promise to myself and our listeners I'm going to stop saying yes, queen, because... I got you. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, <clears throat> comma, queen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let me put it in MLA format yeah. <laughs> real quick. Tomo Gozen was known as a Ona Bugeisha, which was a female martial artist. And she served under Minamoto no Yoshinaka during the Genpai War, which was 1180 to 1185. What kind of pie was it? Sounds delicious. Oh, the Genpai. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're immediately ready for that. Wow. We've been friends for since the day I popped out the room. I was ready. <laughs> that was fantastic. So the samurai at this point actually weren't a formal cast yet. They were around, they were those warriors, but they weren't a cast. So essentially, she was a huge trailblazer when you come talking about, you know, just like samurai in general. And the Genpai War, again, just a bunch of pies named Gen, Jacob. You've said like, you've said like three things that I oh, wanted to yeah, make puns about. Yeah, yeah. He, All right, lay him out. No, 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 well, no, no, no. You said she is a giant trailblazer, so I was just imagining like a giant SUV rolling through town. Like, oh my. Okay, okay. That's then, one. Mark, uh, what you got? The other no, one was no. then you said she was part of a cast. She wasn't part of a cast. I was like, well, she was probably just an auditioning actress then. But... <laughs> oh my God. That's definitely the one I was thinking about. <laughs> Honestly, that was tremendous. <laughs> Yikes. All right, go on. But the Genpai War was fought between Minamoto and the Tyra clans. We're both struggling. The what first, clans? The Tyra clans. Oh. Tyra and the Banks. Minamoto. It's a stretch. <laughs> All, right. All right, I'm done. I'm sorry. Literally beating my head against the <laughs> So at least you were struggling to become the first shogunate of Japan. And now Tomo, who again um, was an incredible warrior, she led a thousand cavalrymen in this five-year war. She technically was never really defeated in battles that she participated, and she even survived an ambush of 300 against 6,000 men. Okay. So essentially, like her. That's pretty good. 300 of her men, her cavalrymen, were surrounded by 6,000 of her enemy. And she got out of there. So this is like she, the real 300. She was the OG yes. 300. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like, from all accounts, like, she was a professional head collector. That's what one of my sources <laughs> actually said. She was such a badass. And even in the tale of the Heki, which was the uh, essentially the poem that was written about this conflict, it's written that in addition to Tomo's incredible beauty, and now I quote here, she was also a remarkably strong archer 
and as a swordswoman, she was a warrior worth a thousand, ready to confront a demon or a god, mounted or on foot. Now her side eventually did lose, but in the last battle, Tomo unhorsed, pinned, and decapitated her enemy's strongest warrior at the Battle of Awazu. Alright, that's pretty good. Hell yeah. Now we don't know what became of her after the war, but let's just assume that she lived a very happy life. I'm good with that. <laughs> Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> just letting the people know. Oh, okay, okay. In case I'm not anyone... a terrible person. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> after I finished my last sentence, people were like, whoa, it's just, just is Jacob okay? <laughs> All the listeners are like, I'm I don't know. I think seats. Jacob might have a problem with this. <laughs> Known woman hater. <laughs> No, I'm obviously kidding. Leave him alone. After I just just did half an episode on a strong woman character. (laughs) After I just deferred to you to be my yes queen. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Next up is Yasuke, who was the African samurai. Now, Yasuke was a African slave or bodyguard that's kind of disputed uh, with different uh, sources. He was brought to Japan in 1579 by the Jesuit missionary Alessandro Valignano. That's kind of crazy that there's Jesuit missionaries being allowed in, though, when you think about how isolationist they're being. It was very contested, and essentially this guy was pretty sequestered, the Alessandro guy. He could only have like a very, very small camp. I don't know how they didn't cut his head off, like, almost on sight. But maybe it's because they came with Yusuke. Because this, by all accounts, was the first time that Japan had ever seen a black person on their shores. And this caused an incredible sensation. And some reports even say that there was a riot of people trying to see him. I don't doubt it. Well, they shouldn't have any, like preconceived notions about him so they should be yeah yeah, it should be very much like hey let's go talk to this guy but it's like think about it you've lived for 15 well you've had from the beginning of the world up until 1500 a.d and you've never seen someone with a different skin color than you well that's that's an interesting conversation how much racism could they have against a people that they never inner era like well no and again they were very isolationist so there were like Visitors were seldom. Like, yeah, yeah. Granted, Jesuits did start coming in around this time, but still but that's what seldom. I'm saying. Like seeing someone with it that like really dark skin color compared yeah. to what you have uh-huh. is probably just like it would it would be a spectacle. It'd be like yeah. not saying this in a bad way, but it, oh yeah, it would course. be like if a circus came to town with like the the bearded woman or whatever. Yep. I think like, it's more so human nature. If right, you haven't it, seen it, you're curious. Exactly, yep. it's yep. that curiosity. I'm not yep. saying it as like a negative thing. Yep. It's just I don't that's, think anyone's yeah. taking it negatively. Yeah, it's just a matter of fact. Right. If you haven't mm-hmm. seen it before, you're curious. Exactly, so. it's a curiosity. Yep. In fact, I mean, his arrival was such like big news that he was called to an audience with Oda Nobunaga was the most powerful warlord of the day. Again, he was one of the three most famous samurai of all time. A lot of people say he's number one just because he started the whole process of trying to unify Japan. And Oda, Oda Nobunaga was so stunned by his appearance, Yasuke's appearance, that he had him stripped to the waist 
and Oda actually rubbed his skin to prove that it wasn't colored with ink. I mean, yeah. I... And now, no, hold on. They become, spoiler these two become like best friends. Hell yeah. So just kind of put it in context here as well. Just kind of where the fascination comes from. The average Japanese man at the time was five feet tall. Stereotypes. Yeah. And then Yasuke was six foot two. Yeah. Yeah. That'll, that's its own curiosity probably. Right. And by all accounts, he was extremely strong. And again, he had that incredible size. So Oda Nobunaga made Yasuke his personal retainer and bodyguard. And in 1581, Yasuke was elevated to the rank of samurai after only two years being on the continent. Keep in mind, these guys trained from birth, but Yasuke, by all accounts, participated in different Indian wars that were happening. Uh, so it's not like he was just some random guy. He wasn't a scrub. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, and also Yasuke, by many accounts, became very fluent in Japanese. Dude, that's impressive. And Odo, Oda Nobunaga became just enthralled by Yasuke's different depictions of the world. Like describing India, describing elephants, so, you know, all those different things. This guy was probably well-educated too. Because yes. picking up a mm-hmm. different language, particularly the older you are, is extremely difficult. So Yeah, especially Japanese. I mean, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's like the second hardest language to learn behind English. Japanese is Japanese. Japanese is a crazy language to try and learn, mm-hmm. especially the written Japanese language. Chinese, yeah. like Mandarin and Japanese, those are both very difficult, like written languages to learn, just because. It's more like designs. Yeah, it, it, it's else. a lot more on the symbolical side compared to like what we know now mm-hmm. is like the like Alphabet, lot like yeah. etymological like yeah. letters and yep. stuff like that. So, it's... dude, bright guy. Oh yeah. Now Yasuke and Nobunaga dined. Every single night, because obviously there were you know, bodyguard and you know feudal lord of Japan trying to take over Japan, and Yasuke was eventually upgraded to Nobunaga's personal sword bearer, so essentially head of his guard. Now, in 1581, uh, Yasuke joined Oda's forces in their invasion of the Iga province, and now this was a province filled with forty to sixty thousand troops. And was actually full of ninjas. I'm not making this up. Hell yeah. Completely full of ninjas. And I I watched a recent Netflix documentary about this. They were incredible. The Iga put up such an incredible fight. They almost got Oda Nobunaga just sleeping one day. Now, I don't have any accounts that Yusuke saved his life. But, I mean, they were just an incredible, incredible guerrilla warfare. And they spawned kind of that birth of the ninja. Like what the ninja is today. But anyway, Ninjas that was Yusuke's cool. first okay, step. I will say, if you're like, you're going to get faced by a, a samurai or a ninja and you're not going to know when, ninja is scary as all get out, dude. Oh, yeah. I probably will do a ninja episode, FYI, oh, in the future. That's awesome. So this was the first campaign that Yusuke joined with Oda Nobunaga. The second one was his last in June 1582 when Oda, Oda Nobunaga, I can't believe I'm struggling with that name so much and also you're wearing harry potter glasses just again realizing that <laughs> i knew one of you would realize like <laughs> halfway through so his general mitsuhide akichi attacked oda's residence in kyoto and the attack triggered what was known as the battle of honoji temple 
and essentially put an end to Oda Nobunaga, who was when defacing when facing defeat, he performed seppuku. So he did the gruesome act um, with his attendant Ranmuro Mori was the one that chopped off his head, but his final order was that Yasuke take his sword and his decapitated head to his son. Now this, hmm. I mean, obviously, like, that sounds crazy. Why would you take your head? This was essentially so that the enemy couldn't have it. Yeah. yeah. So that, that essentially sense. power passed down to his son. Right. And now after he did this, Yusuke did actually get captured, but was released because he wasn't Japanese by uh, uh, Oda's enemies. And a lot isn't known after this happens when he was released. Some say he became a pirate. Some say he became a wandering samurai, a.k.a. a ronin. And also some say that he may have just joined up with the Jesuits again. But that is what we know of. Either way, Yusuke. it's a crazy story just to that point. Yeah. Now our last featured samurai, before we get into my personal favorite story of samurai is Miyamoto Musashi. Now, do you guys have any knowledge of who this guy is? Admittedly, no. I don't think so. Which is fair. This is very fair. He is certified badass. I'll give you that. He's got a badass name. Oh, yeah. Now, he he... made the Nintendo? I don't think so. Oh, I'm too early or too late? Too early. (laughs) Uh, By a year or two. He was the undisputed Pokemon card champion, though. <laughs> I had a Pokemon joke built into this. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> Heck I yeah. literally, one of my bullets is Pokemon joke here. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a gun. Jump the gun. So this was a samurai that never held his own lands or really served a lord as a formal samurai, but he was pretty much strictly a duelist. <laughs> Okay, I can't let that pass. <laughs> a duelist? Come on. He had a blue eyes, white, white dragon. dragon. Yep. He had a dark magician. <laughs> he Maybe had many a, a Karibo. Oh, Kar- summon Skull. My grandfather's stupid deck has no big cards, cards, Kaiba. <laughs> Exodia. Obliterate. Dude, what a line to just drop. Like, my father's deck has no good cards, Kaiba. <laughs> Do you guys remember the bug guy that like throws Yuki's cards off of the, the ship? Yes. Weevil Underwood. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Bull, Bull? Bull? Yeah, I think... Dude, Bull Cut McGee. Yeah. Dude, I think that Joey jumps in the water. Yeah. He does, oh, and then my. Yugi what jumps in to save yeah. Joey. What a friend. Hey, he's just a kid from Brooklyn. <laughs> but also in Japan. I guess. But back to Musashi. His father was an accomplished swordsman and served the lord of Takeyama Castle, which overlooked the village that he grew up in. Now, Musashi actually won his first duel, samurai duel, to the death. Keep in mind, these weren't just play duels for the most part. When you challenge a samurai, it was to the death. Definitely more than just monster cards. Well, I mean, to the death with a sword, getting sent to the shadow realm. (laughs) Getting your legs chopped off in that one case. (laughs) The Shadow Realm is an Americanized thing, so they just died. They just died, yeah. Just like, yeah. Really? Yeah, Yeah. the Shadow, like, they had to change a bunch of stuff in the uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! anime slash cartoon to bring it over to America. Like, Yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! wasn't a kid's game, really. Yeah, the the Shadow Realm in Japan meant just you died. 
and uh, like they had to change some of the cards so that they were more like kid friendly because they looked like more like some of the female drawings were more adult oriented. So oh yeah, I'm glad they did the second one because we don't need that. But yeah, wow. Anywho, Musashi won his first duel at the age of twelve, accepting a challenge from a traveling samurai. So another grown man facing a twelve year old. So traveling samurai or Ronin, you said. Um, in this case, I don't have, so let me back up. Ronin are actually samurai without masters. Okay. So essentially their Lord was either killed, um, dishonored. They were kind of symbolized also with like outlaws, but again, the next story I'm going to tell Ronin really aren't always outlaws. So it doesn't just mean they're traveling. It just means that they have no one like commanding them basically. Exactly. Okay. They were masterless swordsmen. Gotcha. Gotcha. I believe that's actually the definition if i'm sure. not mistaken but he accepted a challenge from a grown-ass samurai and stunned him with a sudden attack with a wooden pole so not a katana and beat him to death on the ground when he was 12 jeez <laughs> that's brutal this kid's the badass hold on i have to show you a version of a japanese card for Yu-Gi-Oh. that's uncensored versus the american version Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm not. This is real. Yeah, I know. I've seen that before. Oh, okay. For the audience, it's a comparison of a clothed woman and a woman showing one of her body parts. Yeah. And uh, like the uh, the toon magician girl and stuff like yeah. they oh, had to like de-size her chest for the American audience and stuff. And, so, and some are less subtle. It's not yeah. always like super deliberate, but. Okay. So, Musashi was known for actually winning many of his duels with a wooden sword. And early in his career, he defeated several members of the Yoshioku School, which was essentially the greatest school in all Japan and located in Kyoto. Defeated many of the subordinates, defeated the master, essentially put an end to that entire preeminent school of swordsmanship in Japan. And then he went on a Musha Shugui, which is a warrior pilgrimage. So basically, he went from town to town, district to district, dueling different masters of various schools and weapons. That's that's a real power move. <clears throat> Sounds like the uh, Native he was American. traveling across the world, searching far and wide. Uh, There's the Pokemon. <laughs> he wants to be the very best, doesn't he? Wanna kill them all, <laughs> samurai. <laughs> Now, in 1612, he fought his most famous duel, which was against Sasaki Kojiro on the tiny island of Hunajima, situated in the Kanman Straits between Japan's main island and Kyushu. Musashi aggravated his opponent by intentionally arriving three hours late. Now, keep in mind, samurai, again, all about honor, all about especially respecting your enemy. Showing up late, even by a minute, was a huge slap in the face, and this man showed up Three hours late. I mean, it really gets in their head, though. It did, and that's exactly why he did it, because he was a little bit older. So, in this fierce but brief duel, he struck his opponent dead, Musashi struck his opponent dead, with a wooden sword that he had carved from an oar on his way to the island. That's badass. Dude, that is cool. Yeah. Now, at the end of his life, he took up residence with the Daimo at Kunamoto Castle, where he dueled less and essentially, like I said before, just kind of learned how to paint, 
And eventually, which this is his lasting legacy, he wrote the Book of the Five Rings, which is still used in many military academies and many militaries across the world. I can't speak for the U.S. This well, may be more Lord of, of the Rings. a the Lord, the Lord of the Five Rings. Is that? Do you know about that book at all? No, no. tell me. Did you know? I don't know. I was so just wondering because he said it's been essentially used across it, the world. So it, no, well, that's why I said Lord of the Rings. I thought maybe it was an offshoot. <laughs> so Musashi was also he did participate in the Age of the Warring States. Uh, there's a lot of discrepancy on which side he fought for, whether the winning side or losing side, with all the sources. But basically, he lays down multiple tactics. He goes very in-depth about the different sword schools that he started, as well as his most known one. Most known one. Most known one. Holy cow. <laughs> Are you wow. okay over there? Well, you're the ones making me drink all these shots with those trivia questions. Uh, his two-sword right. technique, the Nitin Ichiru, Sotokan so kind of summed this guy up. Uh, he was undefeated across 60 duels to the death. And, like I mentioned, wrote that book of the five rings. That's, that's pretty intense. What a life. So now, the grand finale. We're almost there. I want to tell you guys the story of the 47 Ronin. This I've heard of, but I don't know th- the story of. Now, for the listeners, I'm not going to be talking about the Keanu Reeves movie. This is the real story of 47 Ronin so devoted to Bushido, to their master's honor, that they literally risked it all. So, in April 1701, Imperial envoys from Kyoto arrived in Edo, which is now Tokyo, which was the capital of the shogunate. Three provincial daimyo were appointed to receive them, which included Asano Noganori from Ako. Now, remember that guy. The three provincial daimyo, which included Asano, were not very familiar with the court etiquette. And keep in mind, again, court etiquette was super important at this time. If you fudged up, you could either be put in jail or executed. So, these three daimyo were directed to consult Kira Yoshinaka, because again, they were inexperienced, and Kira was more of an experienced guy. They were directed to consult him in all manners regarding this. So, two of the daimyo gave Kira lavish presents to basically say thank you for helping us and to ensure his cooperation. Essentially, this was a bribe, but Asano offered only kind of a smaller gift, a token gift. This annoyed Kira and resulted with him taunting Asano for the remainder of April. So essentially the entire month constantly braiding him. And again, keep in mind, honor was everything to these men. So if you even called someone like dirty, they took that as the highest offense. So on April 21st, 1701, in the audience hall of the Shogun's palace, Asano was essentially fed up with what Kira was saying. Kira essentially called him a outside pig in the presence of all these different court officials. So imagine, let's compare this to someone saying that, like in the U.S. Senate, someone saying someone else is a bad word, essentially. Same comparison. So Asano flew at Kira with his katana, 
And now Kira did escape with only minor wounds, a scratch across his cheek. That's important for later. But Asano, he broke court etiquette. So the Shogun, who's Tokugawa, oh man, Tsunayoshi, ordered Asano to commit seppuku, which we talked about very in depth before, that same day. And his lands in Akko were all seized by the Shogun. Now, with essentially Asano being dead, 47 of his retainers, his samurai retainers, his bodyguards, were all became, they all became ronin. And they were headed by Oishi Yoshio. And after they found out the news that Asano was essentially dead, they met to determine what they would do. Because again, they were ronin, they were masterless, they didn't really have a plan. Now, some favored resisting if the castle had to be yielded, so essentially defending their homeland. Others swore an oath to commit seppuku right outside the castle gates and paint the walls with their guts. However, Oshi, who was their leader, counseled caution, and his view actually prevailed. They surrendered the castle peacefully, but the 47 ronin swore revenge for their fallen master. So over the next year, Oshi and the other retainers literally acted like they were living in retirement. Acted like from all accounts despicable men for the times. They frequented brothels. They got super drunk. Oshi and his commitment to the game actually divorced his wife and became quote-unquote drunkard and visited, again, brothels. And again, he divorced his wife to keep her safe because yeah. he knew what was going to happen next, which I'll get into. Yeah, because he wanted to live the party life. <laughs> and this was the start of LMFAO, the <laughs> band. <laughs> and I like to party. <laughs> I, too, like to party. No, I'm the only one that likes to party. <laughs> You're not a part of the Turbo team. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't run. <laughs> Walk slowly. You gotta help him. <laughs> now, they did this because Kira, who was super, super suspicious that these 47 guys who didn't commit seppuku were going to come back to assassinate him. So they did this for an entire year to throw, essentially throw off his spies. And once they, the spies stopped following them, they gathered in the autumn of 1702. So Oshi and 46 other ronin, including his son, gathered in Edo, where Kira Yoshinaka's mansion was. So, on the fateful day of December 14th, 1702, as snow fell down at nightfall, the 47 ronin met once to prepare for their final attack. They talked about banging a drum three times once it was ready for everyone to storm. Now, silently, some of the ronin scaled the walls of Kier's mansion and overpowered and tied up the startled night watchman. They opened the gates, and once the drummer hit the third bong, both from the front and from the back, the 47 ronin stormed the castle. (laughs) Kier's samurai were caught asleep and rushed out to fight shoeless in the snow. And now a furious battle ensued. Kira himself was only wearing his underwear, and he ran to hide in a storage shed. Now the Ronin, after defeating all forty of the uh, of Kira's guards, 
Search the house for an hour, again fighting through opposing samurai, and discovered the official cowering in the shed amongst heaps of coal. They recognized him by the scar on his head, left by Asano's blow a year before, and Oshi dropped to his knees and bowed, out of respect, and offered Kira the same short sword that Asano had used to commit seppuku. Man, that's... Okay. What a story. I get... Uh-huh. I, I get that he's honoring him, but also that's kind of insulting. Oh, it gets, it gets better. So, Oshi soon realized that Kira did not have the courage to kill himself honorably, again, in that culture. However, the official showed no inclination of actually taking the sword to defend himself and was shaking in terror. So, Oshi beheaded Kira with the same sword that his master used to commit seppuku. Oh, yeah. So, the ronin reassembled in the mansion's courtyard, and literally all of them were alive. That's awesome. Only two of them were injured, but they were still able to walk. And they killed, again, over 40 of Kira's samurai guards. And at daybreak, the ronin walked through town to Senka Kuji Temple, where their lord was buried. And the story of their revenge spread through the town so quickly. Again, Edo, Tokyo, excuse me, Edo, Tokyo, huge town. And crowds gathered to cheer them along the way. Now, Oshi rinsed the blood from Kira's head and presented it at Asano's grave in a final tribute to their fallen master. That's awesome. That's pretty dope. Now, to conclude this, the 47 Ronin were arrested, but they had become national heroes for doing what they did, especially for their strict adherence to Bushido and, again, just how brave they were to essentially throw their lives away for their master. And a lot of the population of Japan hoped that they would be exonerated for their crimes. And the shogun himself actually wanted to grant clemency. But his counselors advised that doing so would lead to a lot of similar actions. Yeah. For maybe not as just reasons. So, on February 4th, 1703, the ronin were ordered to commit seppuku and did so. And now they are currently all buried around the grave of their master to this day. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Unfortunate end, maybe, but... Yep. But they accomplished what yeah. they wanted. Yeah, I mean, if they... I guess the that really just seals the deal that they actually believed in what they were doing, because otherwise mm-hmm. they probably would have taken off. Well, and I mean, it is, a, it is a revenge story, so, I mean, I'm sure people don't side with them, but, like, just yeah. the fact that they did what they did is pretty badass. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, like you think about the culture of the time, I mean, you were devoted to your Lord and they followed through even when he was dead. They were devoted a hundred percent. And now as a result of this, I mean, there's been a ton of different plays, movies, prints, books, TV shows, all that stuff. And kind of like that kind of leads me to my main conclusion. Samurai, we mentioned before, are essentially the figureheads of Japanese culture. For those of us that aren't in Japan, I should preface. Like when you think of Japan, you think of samurai, vice versa. But their impact on pop culture and music and I mean, even video games, books, movies, TV shows, everything. The katana, the samurai, they're super prevalent. 
So that's why I love this stuff so much because they haven't really existed for 200 years. I mean, their impact is still felt today. And honestly, that's why I personally love the samurai, their commitment to, you know, what they did as well. And again, we'll, we can maybe get into other different samurai stories if you guys like this one. But um, yeah, that wraps it up for me. That's super cool. Yeah, that was that was a great story. Yeah, good job. Yeah, I'd... thanks, pals. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, you know, I love Japanese culture and stuff. So, like, I knew about like seppuku and all that, and how like dedicated these people were to the cause that they served. And mm-hmm. you don't see that a lot of. You see it in places nowadays, but I don't think you see it as widespread as this samurai culture was Mm -hmm. because this was like a daily occurrence for people in their lives. And nowadays I don't think really that's as prevalent in a military dedication to something this culturally important. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty cool to hear about how, how their lifestyle was formed around this one thing. Yeah, keep in mind, this was 700 years. Yeah. It's like, that's insane. That's, that's dang mo- near like triple what the U.S. is. Exactly, at. yeah. So, but yeah, I hope you all enjoyed it. And um, you can look for, you know, a lot of samurai pictures coming up on. <laughs> Our Twitter and Instagram at thegemsofhistory.com. Yes. We don't have a website at just the gems of history. Holy <laughs> Are you trying to hint that we should make a website? I told you, to we like... have an offer. We, yeah. could, we could do it. But... Yep. No, that was awesome, though. Yeah. yeah, if you want to look at those pictures, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, gems underscore history on Twitter and gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast that is right on instagram uh email us at gems of history podcast at gmail.com if you guys want to leave us any comments and stuff like that but yeah that was that was a really fun one i i I think it's funny that we we covered pirates and then samurai which i feel like are two things that we kind of reference a lot oh as like a whole and the fact that we did them back to back like that is kind of funny i literally like could not go another episode without talking about samurai yeah like i was like uh i know you guys don't watch always sunny but i was like charlie kelly in the mail room just ripping darts like can i please talk about samurai i've been dying to talk about samurai please (laughs) let me talk about it was really well done because it wasn't even necessarily about a specific aspect of it it was kind of collective and i've never seen it maybe done that well that you cover an entire concept, being really samurai as a whole, mm-hmm. in a synopsis enough that we covered in one podcast. Yeah, it was, that's it was pretty concise, good, dude. Yeah. That was took, pretty good. It took Netflix eight hours to try to hey. get through all their stuff, and I think I did a better job. In my very <laughs> biased opinion. Yeah, it was very good, dude. Thank you. Heck yeah, Mark. I hope you're ready to follow that up next week. You know me, no pressure, no stress, dude. I just, I just go with the flow. I hope BuzzFeed and Sal's got something for it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> don't knock No, 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 I'm not at all. Because that is absolutely probably where it's coming I'm from. I'm not at all knocking it, dude. BuzzFeed yeah. and Sal I'm not going to lie. Great. I kind of have one from BuzzFeed and Sal. No, dude, go for it. I <laughs> love the, those stuff. Yeah. Oh, real it's quick, let me shout out my sources. Yeah, I know go I for should it. probably start doing that at the beginning, so I apologize for that. So, first off, I have a bunch. So, we have allaboutjapan.com. What's it all about? Japan.com. <laughs> oh, it's about 
just like a specific website called japan.com and it's a website just covering that website it's a website it's yes. inception on a website next we have listen to the world.net what is that one to? we have high consumption i'm he ignoring doesn't you even acknowledge you dude we have britannica.com thoughtco.com and then finally, don't know how this happened, but theartofmanliness.com. Heck yeah. Woot. Manly men. And their icon is a guy with a mustache. Like, okay. Heck yeah. Is he wearing Harry Potter glasses? No. So how much of a man is he? Guess I'm missing the mark. <laughs> or he is. Yeah, one of the two. Wait, you're missing Mark? He's right there. Hey. All right. Oh, man. Right. I guess joke. I deserve that. <laughs> yeah. Bad jokes to end it. <laughs> That's our sign off. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with Mark leading us in the next topic. So look forward to that. But until then, if you haven't listened to all of the previous episodes before this one, go back and listen through if you've not caught up yet. But until next time, we will catch you later. Everyone have a great week this week, and we'll talk to you next time. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Later.